what political scientists are studying is human behavior. And human behavior is much harder to predict. We've learned a lot and how ordinary citizens think. This is a moment when politics is intruding and on many people's lives and people realize that the outcomes of elections and what happens in the political sphere can have a big impact on their families, the way they live and the future of the country. The two parties, they moved very far apart and in an era of polarization, mobilizing backlash against the policy proposals of the other party is a very effective way for party leaders to try to gin up anger against the other side. Hi, today we're lucky to be joined by Eric Potashnik, who is a professor of political science at the Watson Institute of International and Public Affairs at Brown University. I think, did I get that pretty well? Yeah. Great. Eric, welcome. Thank you. How are you? Thanks. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. It's always fun for me to talk with someone who really is a political science. One of the very first questions I ever got asked in political science classes, do you think political science is an actual science? And over the years, I my initial reaction was, no, it's not. It's just a bunch of throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. And I guess in part, it still is that, but I, my view is a complete 180. I, I absolutely do believe it is a science. And reading your book, which we're be discussing today is proof that it is a science. I certainly agree. It's not a science like chemistry. It's not a science like physics because what political scientists are studying is human behavior. And human behavior is much harder to predict and much more contingent. But nonetheless, I'm proud to be a political scientist. I think over the last several decades, political science has really advanced. We've learned a lot about how people vote and how ordinary citizens think about politics. We've learned a lot about the incentives of leaders. And unfortunately, I think we're learning now to appreciate the fragility and degree to which many institutions that we took for granted are much more vulnerable to threats than we had realized in the past. And I don't think political science will ever be on the same plane as physics or some of the really hard natural sciences. But we have learned a lot and we've made a lot of progress in understanding the political world. It's great. It's a good time, I think, to be a political scientist, right? Yeah, it's true. And lots of people come up to me and I say it's a political scientist. You meet somebody on the subway or a plane or something. The first thing I always say is, it's not my fault. I, I'm only <laughs> studying what's happening. We're not really to blame. And they chuckle. But yes, it, this is a moment when everyone, even people who are not political junkies, are really interested in understanding what's happening in, in the United States and around the world. And because the stakes seem really high and been periods when politics was something that a lot of people could safely ignore. Most people were busy with their jobs, their families, their hobbies, and except for a, a small percentage of the population, really are not spending that much time thinking about politics. And, and that's probably how we want things to be. But this is a moment when politics is intruding and on many people's lives. And people realize that the outcomes of elections and what happens in the political sphere can have a big impact on their families, the way they live, and the future of the country. And we're going to be discussing primarily the contents of your new book, which is Counter-Mobilization, Policy Feedback and Backlash in a Polarized Age. And congrats. And it's a good read. And again, I don't think you have to be a political scientist to benefit from reading the book, which is available on where all good books are sold in Kindle and hardcover paperback. So 
It's strongly recommended, but I guess one of my initial sort of get responses to that is that statement sort of infers that we have a better informed, better aware, more conscious of the political ramifications sort of population here in the U.S. And I think I that sort of came through a bit in your the book too, in terms of how counter mobilizations one of the one of the the electorate being one of the components that can counter mobilize. But I guess my and maybe this is me just being a wacky liberal looking down my nose is that I it's hard for me to give the American public that much credit. It's mean to say, but is it uh, accurate? No, I think there's a variety of things that we could say. Certainly, one of the points that I make in the book is that a lot of politics does happen in the in the public sphere. There's a tendency among some scholars to argue that all the really important forces in politics are unseen. That and for sure, there are powerful interests that exert pressure in ways that are not very transparent. There can be subterranean forms of power. A lot of things go on below the radar. I certainly do not want to dismiss that. I don't think that everything important is right there before our eyes. But a lot of what is important in politics plays out in the public arena and different actors, whether they're politicians or political parties or interest group leaders or ordinary voters, can see in the drama of politics itself that these struggles over the direction of policy change in the country are very consequential. Who wins the 2024 presidential election will make a lot of difference. In the United States, after Donald Trump was elected, of course, in, in 2016, that was the reason he won is not because he got more votes uh, overall in a popular vote. It's because our constitutional system in the United States is based on an electoral college, and he won there. But there was, and he won, I think, in part because a lot of Americans at the time had reservations about Donald Trump, but had even stronger reservations, rightly or wrongly, about, about Hillary Clinton, who was not a very popular nominee. And, and so that's important to understand in, in how Trump got into office. But there was a, you know, a tremendous amount of counter-mobilization after his election with the, the Women's March. There were mass protests throughout the country in response to his very radical policies on immigration, the family separation policies. And these things have played out in real time, and it's hard to predict how they will play out. But it's not the case, I think, that what happens in politics doesn't matter, as some people argue that are so cynical that it doesn't really make a difference who wins an election or it doesn't really matter if groups counter-mobilize. And I do think that's wrong. Our democracies quite imperfect in many ways. I certainly would not argue that the system doesn't need significant reforms, but there still are opportunities for the intensity of feeling among citizens and groups to be expressed. And in my book, I show that is really an important part of the fabric of democracies. And that doesn't mean that people are always right. Sometimes I think people have dubious views but the system still gives them an opportunity to express themselves. And that is an important part of our pluralistic democracy. Yeah, uh, no, for sure. And I, I, yeah, you're obviously right. I guess to, just for the audience, just to speak a, a little bit about 
um, the definition of counter-mobilization and the context, and I'm sure you'll have more on this, but one of my core takeaways was just that as a baseline, if you have a status quo or you have a new initiative or a policy that's worth, the counter-mobilization is, is simply the proactive or active response to that policy. And because of that, because it's a reactive situation, it tends to skew more conservative. Conservatives, because progressives tend to want to push things forward, want to have implement some sort of system of change, want to modify the status quo, and conservatives in general are hesitant to change their traditional. They want to keep the status quo for whatever reason. But so for instance, again, I think the civil rights plays a huge, your period of study was, I think, 1960 to 2019. And yeah. the civil rights effort was, to me, is a consistent of your 14 policy breakdowns. I think civil rights was consistent in terms of top priority across the decades. And so that's a situation where you actually have conservative reaction, counter-mobilization in the 1960s, but now in the 2010s or 2000s, you have a liberal progressive counter-mobilization to the retraction of civil rights or the attempted retraction of civil rights by the right. Yeah. So thank you. I think that was a nice overview. And let me just expand and amplify some of what you said. So in the book, I really talk about backlashes occur when a change or an attempted change in the status quo in what government is doing generates a reaction, an adverse reaction among could be citizens or organized groups or both. And as you say, empirically, most of this kind of activity historically has come to the extent that it is ideologically tinged and, and not all backlash is because sometimes we just see, for example, a bipartisan backlash or other forms. But to the extent that the kind of reaction we see is coming from the left or the right, most of the time it has come from the right because most of the time when the status quo is changing in government, it's usually moving to the extent that it has an ideological flavor to the left. We're either broadening government's role, expanding its penetration into civil society in some way. Most of the time when there's a push to move policy, it's usually coming from people on the left side of the spectrum. And when people are upset, more often than not, it is people on the right. And for sure, I think you're correct. And so one of the things that I do in the book, besides I, I have a lot of detailed case studies where I really look at how this plays out on the ground and in different policy areas from healthcare to trade to immigration, but I also draw on a database of New York Times articles about backlash episodes in national politics in the United States since the 1960s. And I try to tally them in lots of ways and make sense of what are these patterns? What does it look like over time and across space? And several, I think, patterns jump out, I think, in this data that are interesting. One of them is, unsurprisingly, the most intense period of backlash in the United States was indeed in the 1960s. And it was really quite concentrated in civil rights. This was a massive policy change in the role of the state to try to extend equality and to make good on the American promise to to black Americans. And that generated a tremendous amount of actual and anticipated backlash activity among groups. And there was tremendous amount of attention to reactions to the civil rights movement and to the enactment of, of civil rights laws. 
And but I think what was interesting is in my work is I found that although that was for sure over the over these this period the most intense period, we also had a very intense period in 2010s with the Obama administration and then coming into going into the Trump election in 2016. This was also a period of relatively high levels of backlash in healthcare, in immigration, trade, some new issues like transgender rights as well. But over time, the, the big story that I see in the United States is it's not in the current period that backlash in society is more intense than it was in the 1960s, but it's a much broader phenomenon. Now we are seeing counter-mobilization activity happen, not only in the civil rights arena, although that is for sure continuing, but it's really across policy sectors. In one sector after another, we're seeing efforts to change the status quo, generate adverse reactions, whether it's education, you can think of some of the diversity initiatives or efforts to reform education. There was a famous act called No Child Left Behind to try to improve low-performing schools that generated a lot of backlash activity from teachers unions that viewed it as a threat on their autonomy, from middle-class parents that viewed the reforms as in somehow saying that their the schools that their own kids went to were no longer good, a concern about too much standardized testing in the school, in immigration, in trade, in, in policy sector after policy sector. And I think that there are several reasons why backlash has become such a, a deeply woven characteristic of American politics. One of them is that the two parties have really polarized. They've moved very far apart. And in an era of polarization, mobilizing backlash against the policy proposals of the other party is a very effective way for party leaders to mobilize their bases, try to gin up anger against the other side, and draw attention away from the conflicts or fissures within their own coalition. And so back in the 60s, American society was deeply divided over issues like civil rights, but the two parties were much less polarized. The Civil Rights Act of 1964, for example, had bipartisan support. Republicans voted for it as well. It was a more sectional, regional conflict than a partisan one. And when the two parties line up against one another, that can be a very powerful force for a backlash. A second reason why backlash has become so common in the United States today is really American society and demography have changed dramatically over the last six decades. American society is much more diverse, more ethnically and racially diverse. Immigration has increased as a share of immigrants as a share of the American population. And then public opinion has really been transformed on issues like gay rights, gender roles. On a lot of these issues, public opinion overall has moved to the left. A, a country is much more secular, less religious than it was in the past. And even though these changes have been embraced by millions and millions of Americans, nonetheless, there is still a segment of the American population that have felt very alienated and disoriented by the demographic and social changes of the society. And that is fueled backlash. And then finally, what Brian Jones at the University of Texas and colleagues have called the great broadening, the tremendous expansion of the national government's role in American life since the late 1950s, over time, as government at the national level has 
expanded its role into areas that previously had been left to states and localities or to the private sector or to families and civic organizations. All of that transformation, on the one hand, has built up supportive constituencies, groups that really like the direction of policy change, that have a stake in it and want to see it continue. But at the same time, it's helped mobilize other groups that have viewed these changes as either a threat to their material well-being or to their status in society, and, and they've been counter-mobilizing. So those three forces together, partisan polarization, the transformation in the demography and social fabric of the United States, growing secular trends in America and racial and ethnic diversity, increased immigration, and then simply the broadening of government's role, all of those factors taken together have transformed backlash and made it a force that we're seeing not only in the civil rights arena, but increasingly across the policy domain. If we can drill into that a little bit, because again, from a from an outsider's perspective, right? So the uh, 50s, 60s, and even the beginning of the 70s. And if you look at the, the voting disparity but between the parties in Congress, especially, that there, there's a lot of alignment, right? Real differences are very much outliers, which obviously. Yes. We've seen a a decline in centrists. There used to be relatively liberal Republicans, relatively conservative Democrats, and their numbers have declined a lot. We've seen an increase in roll call partisan votes in Congress where parties on one side of the aisle and all the other members on the other. It's not to say that bipartisan policymaking has disappeared entirely. It hasn't. But nonetheless, as you point out, Congress is much more partisan than it was in the past. So one of the things that you left out from that list, which I guess would have come to my mind, was the role of the media and Mm -hmm. the role of social media in Mm -hmm. fueling, making that divide deeper. Is that not? Yeah, I do think that the rise, for example, of highly partisan outlets, particularly like Fox News, Uh, even more than social media, I think in the United States has played a a major role. I don't think the media was the initial cause of this polarization. Reaction to the civil rights movement, uh, for example, I think played a a major role in reorienting the Republican Party, changes in the demographic compositions of the two parties. The fact that today the Democratic Party is increasingly the party of college-educated voters, Republican Party less. So there's been a lot of powerful factors. But yes, I, I would add to the list, especially the the rise of outlets like Fox News has played an important role. And when you talk about, just to clarify on the breadth situation, so I guess in, in my head again, government has always been, is it depth maybe more than breadth? Because, and this is my ignorance, hasn't government really always been involved in these various areas? just not to the level that they're currently at? No, I think that's not quite right. Americans used to talk about, there was a a political scientist, James Q. Wilson, once talked, they used the phrase, the so-called legitimacy barrier. And what he meant by that was that for a long time, even in the post-war era, the question wasn't simply, would a new national program, would it be effective? Would it solve a problem? But a more fundamental question is, was it even legitimate for the federal government to be involved in that area? There were many policy areas that were pretty much viewed as should be something left to the states and localities, if at all, or to the private sector. Areas like K-12 through education and 
and cleaning up the environment and many other areas like that. And in the 60s and, and 70s, we saw not simply an increase in government spending in areas that it was already involved in, but rather the federal government begin to penetrate areas that it had not previously been involved in a major way. It was so long ago now that it's almost hard to believe, but really, if you look, if you went back and looked at what was the federal government involved in 1955, it was basically running national defense. It was about to start building interstate highways. It wasn't even doing that in the early 1950s. And yeah, it was providing some social security benefits, but there wasn't a Medicare program. It wasn't involved in very much in an environment. It wasn't involved in really in public schools. And there were area after area where the federal government was really not playing a major role. Mm. So the sort of very broad and generic statement that government exists in large part to counter corporate greed, is that too communist of a statement? Yeah, I think we certainly had the earlier the progressive era, and there have been moments of antitrust legislation and others where the government was seen as a counter pressure to, to corporate greed. I think some of FDR's rhetoric during parts of the New Deal, but in general, we did not have the major regulatory state where think about environmental regulation, consumer product regulation. It took a Ralph Nader to come and say that cars were unsafe at any speed and that we shouldn't just let buyer beware and consumers should just go be able to buy whatever car. We didn't have things like seatbelt regulation and airbags. And some of that was technological, but some of it was also the belief that that really wasn't the government's business, that businesses would go sell products and consumers would decide if they wanted them or not. So in occupational safety, environment, affirmative action. In many areas, the federal government had over time got much more involved in the way in which our economy was working and not simply monetary policy or trying to prevent recessions or even only trying to prevent large trusts from forming, but also trying to make sure that the products that business was selling were safe and reasonable for consumers to purchase, that uh, factories weren't polluting too much, that companies were following civil rights laws, and it really has transformed the way in which business plays out in many ways. Right. So in, in framing it in that way, it, it's, it seems like it's a conflict, an inherent conflict between, I won't call it greed, I'll call it the excess of business or business goals versus protection of the public, right? And that seems like on the surface, that seems like a very black and white, good guy, bad guy, little guy, big guy struggle. Yeah, I think part of the reason why a lot of those those efforts were successful was precisely, as you say, they were framed in ways of protecting the public interest. And in many times they were framed that business, is, is, business behavior is not good. But nonetheless, some of those changes did impose costs on business groups and others. And, and initially when that happened, I think it's, it is an interesting part of the story I tell Businesses were not really, even though you think of businesses as very dominant as they were in American life in the, the 1950s, they didn't really have the political capacity initially to do very much about it. They were often on the losing end of those battles. This was an era, a, a relatively liberal era in American life. The Democrats had large majorities and there were still Republican moderates that were willing to go along with some of this new social regulation. And when businesses began finding themselves on the losing end of these battles, they didn't just uh, sit there and throw up their hands. What they, they were angry about it in many cases. And so they built up 
new capacity to counter-mobilize. It didn't happen right away, but they began expanding their lobbying efforts, forming new organizations, and really building up strength. And then the irony was that businesses in the United States, basically the corporate lobby, because of their losses that they had during the 60s and especially the 70s, by the time the 80s come around, a much more conservative era in the United States, Ronald Reagan is president, businesses then had much more capacity to use and deploy, even though some of the threats to their bottom line had passed. And so I think that's one of the interesting things that that my book shows is that the increased encounter mobilization capacity that organizations sometimes build up can outlast the initial threat that caused them to build up the capacity in the first place. It's business becomes a much, much more powerful actor in the 80s and 90s, the kind of neoliberal era. And the reason they were so powerful is because they built up that capacity in response to previous losses. Which to to quantify that a bit, as you mentioned, like creating institutions like the Federalist Society and actively impacting the judiciary and sowing the seeds for a much more favorable legal framework. Yeah. And so, yeah, the Federalist Society, which is the most powerful conservative legal organization, basically it's chosen essentially all of Trump's Supreme Court justices. Trump made a promise that if he was elected, that he would basically do whatever the Federalist Society wanted. And he did. I suspect if he is uh, elected again, he will continue to take outside counsel to make sure he finds the deeply conservative Supreme Court justices that are friendly to these organized groups. And the reason this happened is, is just as you said, because for a long time, liberals dominated the Supreme Court and they were pushing constitutional law in a more progressive direction. There were conservatives that were very frustrated about this. And this was at a time when they were able to have power in other domains like taxation and preventing the expansion of the welfare state. But in the legal arena, they were losing because that the pipeline to the Supreme Court was basically law schools that were basically filled with progressive professors. They didn't really have an entree to gain power in the legal arena. And so they couldn't really mobilize an immediate, powerful public backlash. They couldn't do very much about it. But what they could do is recognize we're on the losing end here. We need to build up our institutional capacity. And so that when we have a friendly president in office, will be in a better position to take advantage of that moment. And that's exactly what they did. My, my friend and Steve Tellis, who is a political scientist at Johns Hopkins University, wrote a great book about the rise of the conservative legal movement. And that I think is, is definitely part of the story. It shows how long the time horizons can be of some of these strategic actors. And sometimes these actors are well positioned. They have the resources and the capacity and the external allies to mobilize a public backlash immediately when their interest or values or status is under threat. And we do see that happen. It's snap immediately. They're ready to go. But at other times, you have groups that are on the losing end. They don't like the way public policy is changing, but they just don't have the capacity to do very much about it. Sometimes they capitulate and they really just are fall apart and they collapse because they're so weak. But at other times, they have enough strength not to do very much in the moment, but to get a counter-mobilization capacity built, even though it's, that may take decades to fully realize itself, but then they will be in a much better position down the road. And that's exactly what we've seen with groups like the Federalist Society. 
But isn't the problem that we're starting to snowball into a critical mass through through things like Citizens United and the election reform laws that are happening? Aren't they trying to game the environment to a point where that sort of liberal backlash isn't is weak just coming out of the box? For sure, I would say whether the conservative side is better at this game than the progressive side is is a question. But I would say both sides recognize that counter-mobilization and the ability of essentially their political enemies to block their agendas is a threat. And we do see efforts to squash the efforts of both sides to do that to the other side. And for example, right now, the most powerful form of liberal backlash is really because we're increasingly, we, even though most backlash remains from the right, as conservatives have gained power and started to have policy victories, we are increasingly seeing counter-mobilization activity coming from the left. The, the area where it's been the strongest is in the, the loss of reproductive rights following the Supreme Court's overturning of uh, the Roe v. Wade decision. We've seen really a very strong counter-mobilization from progressive groups and stretching into the mainstream public. But conservatives that believe in abortion bans, they're recognizing that every time so far abortion rights has been on the ballot since the Dobbs decision, they keep losing even in conservative states like Kansas. And you might want them to say, oh, that's just democracy at work. We always said that we didn't like Roe because it took it out of the hands of the people, it was in the hands of the courts. That isn't right. We should allow the public to have their say. That's what abortion opponents used to say, but now that they have the Dobbs decision, now that the status quo has changed, the status quo is more favorable to them. All of a sudden, they're saying, we don't really want democracy. We don't really want ordinary people to have a say. And so you're seeing in some states, for example, abortion opponents are looking for ways to try to make it harder for advocates of reproductive rights to be able to get initiatives on the ballot or to try to, instead of allowing ballot initiatives protecting reproductive rights to pass with just 50% of the vote, they're looking for ways to make it super majorities and to make it harder. And so, yeah, you are absolutely seeing efforts to rig the rules of the game to prevent democratic majorities from exercising their will. And I think it's, it's not very small d democratic, but it is absolutely a trend that we are starting to see as advocates, for example, of, of uh, abortion restrictions realize that if public opinion is allowed to influence policy, they're going to be on the losing side of many battles. In a normal, healthy political environment, that would probably cause the people who want to win elections to reconsider their position and, and to gravitate along. I think with abortion specifically, and this is, I think, part of the trying to understand the difference between ideological and religious, because to be, I think, and again, I could be very wrong, the the ideology around Republican pro-life efforts is really not about individual rights or states' rights or anything like that. They've clearly shown that there's a bit of hypocrisy in several areas on that front. It's really about the religious context and the belief that, that abortion is murder and having making sure that because they understand that their voting constituency, regardless of the general public, that their core constituency is completely in one corner on that subject. Yeah, I do think that at the core of the movement to restrict abortion is a religious belief that uh, I think it's an honest belief among these people that 
the fetus as a person. And, and I think that there is a movement that want to constitutionalize fetal personhood and would like to have a national ban on abortion, despite all the talk in the past about leaving this up to the states. I do think that there is definitely groups that do not want to see this up to the states and would like to take it and take it out of politics. Though I think seeing Republicans beginning to recognize that this is a electoral loser for them, it's not to say that nobody who is a Republican who wants to restrict abortion can no longer win office because there still are a lot of very deeply conservative congressional districts and there any given election is going to turn on many different issues, not only abortion. Nonetheless, I think they do recognize that this is a electoral liability for them. And it'll be interesting to see in the coming years and decades if they are able to, to adjust. And the problem is they're caught between these competing pressures. Their base wants very restrictive restrictions on abortion, and some would even want a national abortion ban. But they also, in except for the most deeply conservative districts, they do need to be able to get the votes of at least some swing voters, and they have to find a way to, to walk that line. And that has not been very easy for them. Which is, I think, in part why you see that the Senate is divided in, as Congress is. The Senate is still much less divided than the House is, for instance. You do get some semblance of some crossover still. Yeah, because that's right, because senators are representing states and even the most conservative or the most progressive state, it probably has more political diversity within it than the most conservative or progressive congressional district. And the more that you're facing a, a diversity of views in the electorate, it still provides some incentives to find something like that middle ground, even though the Senate has also polarized dramatically over time. So are you concerned at all that the hyperpartisanship and the split has resulted in the potential for completely artificial pushback that it's really manifested for no other, non-ideological, non-electoral, just nothing other than we don't want them to win on X or they have this position on X and we're going to take this position? Yeah. I, so I think that that is absolutely an element. So the, when we see these parties and fights, there are a couple of different explanations. One of them is that it is genuine ideological disagreement. People actually do not have the same view of what a good society is and just don't agree on public policy. I think that is you know, a major driver. But what you just talked about, which is simply conflict for the sake of we, if my team wants one thing and the other team wants the other, and we're going to block them simply because we're on different teams. Even if at some level we do not have an underlying ideological disagreement, even if in the past we might have agreed on some things. Yeah, I agree. As our, we now have increasingly competitive elections where almost every election is decided by a few races. We have a lot of razor thin races. And in this era of tremendous closeness of the partisan divide, that does give an incentive for each side to somehow mobilize against the views of the other side, even if the positions of the other side, even if there might be a basis for an underlying agreement. Here I'm drawing on the work of a great political scientist named Francis Lee, who's at Princeton, who's written about this dynamic. And in even in my own work on health policy, for example, on the Affordable Care Act, you may recall that the idea of, for example, the individual mandate, which was a big part of Obamacare, 
that initially had been a conservative idea, but then once the Democrats embraced it, Republicans abandoned it. There were a lot of other areas for controlling healthcare costs, for using evidence to guide decision-making and the allocation of resources that conservatives, uh, health experts had believed in, even some Republican members had, of Congress had believed in, but then once it became part of the Affordable Care Act, they decided to oppose it just on grounds that we don't want to be on the same side as the Democrats. And so that strategic backlash to line up against the positions of the other side in an era in which the two parties are not only polarized, but also we're living in an era of such heightened electoral competition where every election comes down to a few races and you simply don't want to find any common ground to avoid giving anything to the other side. That too is an important driver of our current politics. So we've talked for the better part of 40 minutes now on on what I would consider to be a pretty depressing or potentially depressing subject, right? So as the expert in this, what do we do about, and I'm not, I guess I'm not talking about pushback in general or backlash in general, just because I think that's inevitably unavoidable, right? Regardless of time and place. But in terms of our democracy, you must have thoughts on, um, what you think actions should be taken or changes should be made to help ensure that we're a thriving democracy another 250 years from now? I think that the big challenge to to link it to my book is when there are visible direct threats that ordinary people can understand, I still have a lot of confidence that we will see significant counter-mobilization to help preserve core democratic values. I am not as pessimistic about protecting voting rights and some other core values as some of my colleagues. I think we have to be concerned about it. I certainly favor much stronger protections for voting rights. I'd like to see a positive right to vote embedded in the Constitution, which is not there now, to the surprise of many Americans. But what I really worry the most about are the erosion of civic capacity and the ability of government to solve problems in ways that ordinary Americans might not understand that would really weaken the ability of government to, to address problems that the public cares about. For example, if Trump were to be elected again and make a major effort to weaken bureaucratic agencies like the Environmental Protection Agency or essentially fire or virtually fire a lot of civil servants that are charged with carrying out important governmental responsibilities. That's in his first time. To go much beyond that. Yeah. To go way beyond where he did in the first term. And I think that there's an apparatus that's being set up to try to allow him to be much more aggressive. That's what I worry about. That would Americans understand if, for example, key agencies are hobbled and not able to do their jobs at all, that erosion in the ability of government to function might not be so visible right away. And even progressives and and liberals may not really always have the most positive views of bureaucrats, of government itself. A lot of Americans still remain what political scientists call operationally liberal and ideologically conservative. What do I mean by that? They do want government to provide programs and they want a clean environment. They're liberal on the pragmatic side, 
but they also don't really like the idea of government and they think government might be too big, might be wasteful and so on, which gives fuel to conservatives. And so only a small percentage of the public is consistently liberal, both in their views on specific government programs as well as in the abstract. And so it's really the kind of threat to government's functioning itself that could happen that I'm worried about that might not be graspable to ordinary Americans that might not prompt a powerful counter-mobilization and that could leave us in a few years' time with a government that is no longer able to carry out the responsibilities that, that ordinary Americans want that would inevitably you know, give much more unchecked power to business that would lead to outcomes that Americans would be unhappy with but wouldn't understand perhaps why they came about because there had never been a dramatic moment that really helped them understand the nature of the threat. Just like termites chipping away at the, or eating away at the foundations of our government. It's those more subtle threats that, that I'm most concerned about. So is it fair to say that if Trump were reelected, your concern would start being, it would be closer to matching that of your associates who are extremely concerned? Yeah, I absolutely. I would be very concerned with another Trump presidency. I think all the signs suggest that it would be much more aggressive than the first term and that there would be fewer people around him that would prevent him from carrying out some of the most radical plans. I think that there's an effort to recruit people that are well out of the mainstream of American political life, not traditional conservatives, but people who have very radical views. And if there were a, if he were elected with a Congress that was dominated by radical Republicans, then Congress itself might not be as, as powerful a check. And during the first administration, most of our institutions held up reasonably well. The courts, even Republican appointees, were a reasonable check on, on the Trump administration. Congress did not go along entirely with his plans, but the composition of Congress has changed a lot. It is a more a much more radical house. And so the American political system will be tested in ways certainly beyond anything I could have ever imagined before if we have another Trump administration. So I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you the same question that I get asked constantly, which is, what are the odds that Trump wins? Like, will he, not just can he win, or what is the likelihood? I think if the election were tomorrow, he would win. Ouch. Yeah, I think the main thing that Democrats are hoping, Democratic strategists, is the economy, you know, really is overall pretty strong. It's remarkable. We've come out of COVID without falling into recession. The employment, unemployment is low. The inflation, even though prices are at a level that are much higher than they were a couple of years ago, certainly I notice it when I go into the grocery store, but the rate of inflation has come down a lot. Overall, the economy is pretty healthy. And the hope, I think, of Democratic strategists is that by November, it takes some time for Americans to realize and to feel that the economy is on solid footing. But if we, the economy continues to improve and remain solid, the hope I'm on the D side is that economic factor will be enough to put Biden over the top. But I think it's likely to be a very close election. All right. Last question. And again, thank you for the time you spent today. Last question. I tried very hard on your Twitter feed to try and find some sort of personal thing that you were interested in, but I could not. And I went back. It was I was 
actually amazed at how consistent you are in the content on your Twitter feed. We like to ask people, is there any sort of media that you've consumed lately, whether it's books, film, TV, audio, that you would strongly recommend to the audience out here that, that is just it, not a political book, just something completely outside the normal zone? I thank you for noticing my, I've been very consistent in my Twitter feed. I'm proud of that, that I've <laughs> maintained that to be about professional expression. In terms of hobbies and things, I have a passion for crime fiction. That's my bedtime reading. And there is a, a late author named Robert Parker, who wrote about 70 books about a, a private detective named Spencer, who was actually a, there was a TV series in the US in the 80s based on that series. But he has a number of series about cops, about private detectives, and they're just great reading. I just consume these books. They're just fun, nice characters. And they tell you a lot about Boston and New England as well. And so that's my hobby at the moment. And I highly recommend them if people like that kind of stuff. All right. There you go, book aficionados. If you're looking for another new offer, you have Robert Parker. And then if you are at all interested in political science, I definitely would recommend Eric's book. Again, uh, I'm just going to use the short title, Counter Mobilization. Eric, I just really wanted to thank you for taking the time today. Thank you, Mike. It was a real pleasure talking to you. I appreciate the opportunity. All right. Thank you. Thanks.